Hi, I'm Marika and welcome to Money Chill Out. On this podcast, I want to dive into the world of the often unspoken topic of money. Effective personal finance management can be a great liberator, but also a huge stress factor in our lives. After a 10-year career on trading flows in London, I want to help demystify the intimidating world of finance and have an open, honest and frank conversation. By opening the discussion, I wish you identify yourself, learn, be inspired and get empowered. Every other week, I'll be joined by guests for conversation on money, mindsets, investment habits and any best practices they abide by. So join me on this journey as we unpick the complexities of finance and get more comfortable talking about our money. And when you're ready to go further in mastering your finances, come and work with me on a one-to-one coaching. You'll grow your awareness, move on with your projects, and have an accountability buddy to track your progress. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome Sandra Marichal, an amazing woman who's done so much, I don't even know where to start. She spent 10 years working in tech, media, marketing, and consulting across Europe and Asia. Being a high performer, she's been awarded top 20 women to watch in marketing by Campaign Asia. In Singapore, she became an activist. She founded the Up to Degrees movement to raise awareness about the environmental impact of aircon systems. She is also a founding partner of A Planet Earth, focusing on empowering women to fight climate change. She's been to Antarctica twice, once with the explorer Robert Swan, and then as a UN woman ambassador. In 2018, she decided to quit everything to be a round-the-world sailor in the Clipper round-the-world yacht race on board UNICEF. She is now back in London, so let's hear more about how she has redefined her successes. So, hi, Sandra, how are you? I'm good. Hi, how are you? (laughs) Yeah, I'm great, great. Thank you so much for being on this podcast and thanks for your time. Super keen to hear about all your initiatives and I have one question before we start. How much energy or hope or willingness you have to make everything move like this? (laughs) Yeah, that's the question everyone asks me and, and everyone has this like dodgies ideas around the things I take for breakfast and no it's completely natural like um, I guess I was just born with a lot of energy I've always been like a kind of a high energy kid in all seriousness though that these days being an adult in the current uh, environment can be quite tough and I actually find my daily hope and energy in the small little gesture of kindness around me and I always look up for positive news so you know one of my top tip is you know, I'm aware about what's going on, but I don't watch TV. If I read the papers and I curate my news feed every day to have an equal amount of positive and other news. And I focus on finding something new to learn every day. That's my little bits. And just, you know, just a tiny, tiny act of kindness around me. That's what keeps me going. Yeah. But otherwise, just Coffee, like everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> that's good. So let's talk about your settled life. So can you tell us a bit more about your career between Europe and Asia? Yeah, um, so I, I don't know, I've been working for, I think, 12, 13 years now. I started in Europe, so I'm French, but after my business school, I went, well, I worked a little bit in Luxembourg in finance, 
worked after my master's degree in London, in the UK, in, in a consulting firm, well, brand consultancy specifically. So it's in between consulting and agency life. Worked really hard there, then moved to Singapore for a couple of years initially, but ended up staying for seven years. And then went from an agency kind of consulting life, went from being a junior consultant all the way to managing the agency for Southeast Asia, to then being hired out by Facebook to lead all of their insights and intelligence called Facebook IQ for Asia Pacific. So that was covering all of the 13 countries between the triangle of Japan, Australia, and India, and everything in between, which led me to travel a lot, to even more, you know, open my mind even more to so many cultures and so many lifestyles. I was working really, really hard. The the hours were long and very, um, not so much long, but just very active, you know, that have afternoon with very quiet time. And then I would have had a call at 11 p.m., 3 a.m. in the morning. So it was quite hectic, but I really embraced that. I loved it. And then after a while, decided that it got to a point in my life where I was like, I've been working for 10 years. I am financially independent, extremely stable, enjoying a really good lifestyle. I'm single. And you know what? I don't have, I don't wake up every morning being excited about things. So I decided to quit everything and go sail around the world on this race called the Clipper, the Clipper Race Around the World. So did a lot of training, flew back to London, left everything in storage in Singapore, right? And when sailing. And um, that was September 2019. By the time we reached the Philippines, we had heard about the, the COVID-19, which wasn't called like that at the time. And we were stuck in quarantine there and we had to put the race on hold and we flew back to home. But my home was nowhere because basically I didn't have a visa to go back to Singapore. I wasn't a resident anymore. I didn't have a job there. And I could have gone back to France, but I had nothing left back in France because I had left, imagine, like seven, 10 years ago, right? So it wasn't my home per se anymore. And like every good story, I met this guy and I thought, why not, you know? So I kind of followed him back to London where we had a good time for two years doing a few things and then decided to start my life again professionally. got hired by Amazon during the pandemic in a global role for the strategy for digital and social. And now I work for a smaller UK-based company, Scale-Up. And I try to support their, well, I lead all of their marketing and their sales team in growing their business with regards to tradespeople. And I focus on trying to bring more women to the trades business in the UK, but also to shift the entire trades business to a more um, eco-friendly practices, because that's often an industry that's kind of not thought about when it comes to protecting our planet. So mm-hmm. yeah, so this is where I am today. <laughs> Amazing. That's pretty good summary. I like it. So what kind of motivated you and, and how did you manage to be high performer? What do you think are your strengths? Very early on in my career, I guess, it was very clear to me that while money was extremely important, obviously, because we need money to leave. And just to give a bit of um, background and context for anybody listening, When I finished my business school, I had a loan, a student loan of 40,000 euros, which at the time was a lot, right? And my salary, my yearly salary in the UK before taxes was 23,000 pounds. So I lived with basically nothing. Like after I had paid my rent, I had nothing left in my bank account. I was paying my loan for 10 years back to the bank, right? So money was important. But actually, what very quickly I realized is the way that I 
appreciate my career and decide where I want to go is by units of learning. So growth to me is very important in a way of, am I learning something new every day? Am I growing as a person? And what I have noticed is by adopting this attitude, the money actually follows because if you become the smartest person in the room or the person with the largest breadth of knowledge or the person with a lot of different work and life experience, then suddenly you're a lot more appealing and attractive on the job market. And so the money follows now. Yeah, so my high performance is I also like working, but for the good reasons. And you talk about money, like the fact that normally with success, you have the money. So how do you manage to stay down to earth? And what kind of person are you financially speaking? I come from a background where my family was far from being rich. They were counting every month. And there were times when I was young, I remember those moments where, you know, we couldn't go and buy the sneakers that everybody had at school, or we couldn't get the l'enchant bag that all the girls were getting in business school at the beginning because we just didn't have the money. And I remember having to make choices. And But it wasn't in a sad way. My parents were very good at kind of setting priorities for where we would spend our money. And their priority as a couple and as adults was to spend that on travels and not on materials and belongings. So that was kind of the set of values I was brought up with. So when I started earning my own money, I was also very conscious of saving for the sake of then being able to spend on something that will make me happy, as opposed to being triggered, because I was very aware of like being triggered by things that you think you want because everybody else has them. But I had this kind of moment, you know, the, the privilege of thanks to my parents to be decayed and be like, but do you really want that? Or is it that you want it because everybody else has it? And so they gave me almost that kind of freedom. At the time, I did not realize it would have been, it was one of the biggest assets I had when it comes to managing my cash flows and my savings and my portfolio, which was really about what is it that you really want and how do you want to spend your money and then make that choice. So, I mean, let's be honest, working for Facebook and Amazon, you know, they pay extremely well. And so I was accumulating all this wealth. And then I would spend time thinking, cool, like, what do I really want to do with that money that would make me a better person, make me really happy? And this is how, and we'll talk about it, I guess, which is I end up, you know, going away for a year, sailing around the world or, you know, flying to Antarctica and going on expedition, which cost a fortune, right? But Mm -hmm. this is where my savings and all of my investments And the return on my investments are invested for me and my whole wellness and happiness, basically. I love it. So aligning, yeah, purpose and values and, yeah, making your money work towards you. Yeah, cool. And so while living in Singapore, so you started to be very interested into climate change issues and you became activists. So what decided you to be one? Oh, it was an interesting story. I was in Singapore for two, three years, I think. And then the COP21, it was in 2016, that's it, in Paris was happening. Everyone was in Paris. And I felt like I had a massive FOMO. And I was like, hold on a second. This is really important to me. I want to do something about it. But I'm stuck in Singapore. What can I do? And I don't know. It was a really big triggering moment for me. And I did something that and Singaporeans will agree with me that French people and and Singaporean people do very well is to complain. It's like, what can we complain about that's not great in Singapore, you know, in terms of protection of the environment and just sustainable practices. And one of the big thing was the use of aircon in Singapore, where 
every single public or building or private offices, a cinema, a shopping mall are extremely cold. We're talking 18 to 20 degrees inside when it's 33, 35 degrees outside. Yeah, I remember being there and exactly it's freezing inside. You really don't want to go. <laughs> and then you get people and it's, you know, it's thriving and it's pushing an entire, the fashion industry sells winter clothes in Singapore. Like they sell you like jumpers and beanies. And I'm like, what on earth is going on here? It's mad. And at the time it was the whole sustainability group of people was tiny. It was like 10 of us. And we were all like, we need to do something. And so I started a movement called Up to Degrees. I went to Antarctica with this quite high profile, Mr. Robert Swan, OBE, came back and used my experience to explain to Singapore and to do a lot of awareness and outreach and lobbying. I couldn't say I was a lobbying because at the time in Singapore, I was illegal and I could have been kind of put in jail or thrown out of the country. So I was being trying to be very subtle about it. Went to parliament, discussed with the authorities, and then we managed in 11 months to change the regulation so that every new public building, so non-private building in Singapore, would have a minimum temperature of 23 degrees inside. Amazing. So you did manage to lobby and change the regulation and wow. Yeah. And I did something. This is for the women who listen. The funny part was um, I needed a lot of time to meet a lot of stakeholders, right? Because it's about it really is about relationship buildings and doing your research and we had the support of Ben & Jerry's. Unilever was supporting us with, they didn't have enough cash to give us, but they basically gave us all the outreach, the support from the PR agency. We had a lot of volunteers supporting us to go to see the different members of parliaments. And then we had also a research agency who did a pro bono, qual and quant research, et cetera. So basically it was a second job for me, right? Just because I, I needed to do it. So I went to see my boss and I said, I would like to go part-time. And I was in consulting at the time. And I was also, you know, in my early 30s. The immediate answer I got was, oh, are you pregnant? <laughs> and I was like, no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm just, I just would like to have some time to do other things that are important to me. I felt like I was a complete alien, completely. Like nobody understood, no one. And now in hindsight, it was like, everybody was like, it was amazing. But it was like, I was facing all these kind of invisible barriers, you know, being a foreigner in Singapore, being a woman trying to take some time off to do something else, doing something out of my time that was not making me earn any money at all. I had nothing to gain financially. So it was really interesting to have to go against all of that. I got a lot of exposure for it. The government decided to then appoint me as an advisor. Like it was really, really good. But as an individual, it's a real act of courage because it goes against everything that you're trying to achieve to, and I quote unquote, to get success in your life, you know, whatever success means to you. But in this instance, if you take the societal definition of safety, security, money, but if you want to protect the environment, you basically decide to not have that. And it was pretty brave at the time. 100%. And I love it that you really push barriers. Really well done on you. Yeah. And you've been to Antarctica, so you said, with Robert Swan, who is one of the greatest explorers in history, is being like the first person to walk to both the North and the South Poles. You've been also as a UN Women Ambassador. So can you tell us a bit like how did it happen and how do you make that these kind of connections? Yeah, so I think what's interesting, so I went once, did my thing, well, did my thing, worked for a year out of that. And then as I was doing all these kind of talks, trying to find communities and support from, you know, different groups of people. So you basically, it's not networking per se, it's just creating connection. 
and asking people for help. I think people overall are not really good at asking for help. I was going out there and say, this is what I want to achieve. Can you help me? How can you help me? Or do you know anyone else who can help me? And when people cannot help you, they always will find a way to connect you with somebody who could, right? I ended up meeting this extraordinary woman, Christina Moore-Levar, and she's co-founder of Her Planet Earth in a small organization in Singapore, but it's doing huge impact. And it's all about leveraging kind of women with power kind of, and then, you know, influence and to support other women who are specifically impacted by climate change. She basically convinced me. She said, please take me back or take, go back and take me with you. So we organized an expedition to Antarctica with women only. We had two women guides in Antarctica and we went to summit the first ascents of mountain that were never climbed before, just us women to make a point about it. And we were able to name those mountains. So there's two mountains in Antarctica. They're called Mount Gaia, which is the name for Earth, and Mount Malala, which was in, obviously, of with respect to Nobel Prize Malala, as you know very well. And we did that. And when we came back, we hosted an event called 100 Women Doing Good. Often in places like Singapore or Hong Kong, you hear a lot about the businessmen, but they actually are and they might not be as loud and they might be a little bit more discreet and doing a lot of low-key but high-impact work behind the scene, there are lots of women in high-influence position who want to do good. And so we hosted that event, 100 Women Doing Good. We had auction, we had presentation, we had UN women coming and present their project, and we managed to raise, I think it was that one evening, was it $16,000 just that one evening? to support the program. So we were basically fundraising by creating more awareness and achieving dreams, basically, and trying to inspire the women to do the same. So that's that was one of the projects, <laughs> another one of the projects. <laughs> and I also seen on your website that you got partly sponsored by Ben & Jerry's. Yes. I come. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, this is the thing. So Singapore, it's a small place. And as I said, I was very loud. I was going after meeting more people, my people. And then at the time, one of so my job was in consulting and brand consulting. And it was Unilever was one of my clients. They have obviously lots of brands. And through connection within Unilever, because Unilever also has a program that tries to promote sustainability. There are a lot of people within Unilever. Whatever your opinion is of Unilever practices, there are a lot of individuals inside the organization trying really hard to, to push the envelope. And they connected me with the brand manager, the original manager at Ben & Jerry's, who were like, absolutely, we want to support you. And as I said, they couldn't give me any financial support. So what they did instead is to, <laughs> it was a crazy story. They gave me tons of those, you know, the tiny little pots of ice cream that you usually buy in the cinemas? Yeah. Yeah. So they donated me over hundred, I was like hundreds of those. And I got them delivered to my office, put them in the fridge and the freezers in the office. I got into a penguin suit and I have, this is not a joke, I have pictures to prove it in videos. I turned off the aircon in the office and we were in a big agency, so there was a few floors. Turned off the aircon, waited for half an hour that people were like, what's going on? It's getting really hot. They can't, I know people complain because they're too hot. And I came out in a penguin suit in a bucket full of ice cream selling this ice cream for $10 Singapore dollars each to make, to fundraise. And I was fundraising and I was, you know, I was not fundraising to go on a trip or anything. I was fundraising to be able to support the research effort to get to do the campaign going where I had these stickers printed and given that to like an army of volunteers. They would go around Singapore. They always had them in their pocket or their wallet. And every time they would see an aircon, you know, monitor in a public place, they would stick a sticker that says, turn it up 
up to degrees. <laughs> and I had to be careful about that because in Singapore, you cannot, it's illegal to stick things against the wall. You can be arrested. And obviously I was by then quite a bit of a public profile. So I had to find a special provider in Malaysia that had a glue <laughs> that would allow stickers to remove without damaging the surface so that I would not be arrested. That was the level of work I was doing. It was a bit silly at the time, but it was really well worth it. So amazing. It's not even being silly. It's crazy. Like the ideas that you have, the, wow, <laughs> the efforts you put into it, it's... It was a lot of effort. I was, I'm not going to lie, you know. So the government subtly, the national of, um, was it the National Board of Development, they ended up changing the regulation. It was the 1st December. They didn't tell anybody. There was no press release whatsoever. And so I saw it because obviously I had all of my contact internally. I was doing lobbying. So I was kind of well connected by then. I remember seeing this. I was at work. I was working at Facebook then. And I don't know, like the pressure just, you know, just poof, gone. I was extremely tired. It took me like a month to recover because I was just like nonstop, you know, pushing really, really hard. But it's okay, you know, we recovered and all good. And then people would come to me and say, can you do the same for plastic bag? And I was like, I need a bit of a break right now. But yes, we should do the same for plastic bags. Cool. And even though we know everybody's not like you, having so much energy and time and willingness, most of people, I would imagine, would want in a way to be involved and dedicate a bit of their time to environmental charities. So would you have any to recommend and, and why? Yeah, well, that is a, it's a big question. I think the answer is obviously yes. Time is time and money are the best thing you can give, right? If you don't have a dedicated bucket of your budget monthly to dedicate to or support a sponsored charity, what I would tend to do is I would tend to look locally about any sorts of local organization that you can help. I'm not saying not supporting, you know, WWF is not a good idea or the big organization, but at these organizations thrive on funds. They need funds because they run like big organizations, like big companies, right? So for them, they have to manage a PNL. So they tend to find funding more helpful and useful unless they have a special activation or like it's Earth Day, right? So then they have, they need a lot of volunteers. But the local charities have usually a massive impact on your local community. And you might give them a thousand dollars, pounds, euro, it doesn't matter. They might not always know what to do with that. And then it's actually tricky for them because they have to deal with like tax implication and filing and all of that. So it's actually better to go to literally Google community near me or go on Facebook or go on Instagram and find the one that is in your community that has a huge impact and then contact them directly and be like, I've got three hours a week. How can I help? And they will find something for you to do. Yeah. And it's good to know the difference between local versus like big charities. Cool. So next subject is quitting everything. So 2018, you decided, okay, I'm done. I'm going to do round the world sailing. Did you have a passion for sailing before? How did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It didn't come out of nowhere. I know, yeah. So since I was young, so my, my dad is a sailor. My grandfather was a sailor. So, but they were not sailing professionally. They were sailing as a hobby. You know, it wasn't just to clarify again for everybody. This is it was not the fancy sailing that you have in mind, like the beautiful yacht and champagne and none of that. It was uh, the rugged, cold winter Normandy sailing on a small dinghy. That's more like it. So it was nothing fancy or, yeah, it was enjoyable because I enjoy being on the water personally. I like it. It's my place of I don't know. Everybody's got their place where 
you know, you suddenly just can breathe properly, right? You're like, yeah, disconnect, really, let's say, yeah, connect with something, yeah, yeah, with something bigger. And that's my place when I'm on the boat sailing, going fast. I'm like, ah, this is, this is it. This is where everything else, you know, the world could end. Literally, this is what was going on during the pandemic. But you know, I just, I would feel quite safe there. So yeah, I'm, I've been always wanted to do something a little bit more for myself. I guess it got to a point where, as I said, it was 10 years and you get tired, you know, like I also get tired. I'm high energy, but I just want to be like, I need a break. It was really hard though. Huh? I'm going to say signing that contract to go on a race. So you send a contract, right? You go into a, a bigger, it's an organization of a race. So, wow. so signing it took me a lot of courage because it wasn't about the doing the race that was hard to make a decision. It was about giving up on a high paying job, a comfortable flat in Singapore, life with all of my friends and all of my habit of, you know, going to this beautiful place for travels. And I was having the best lifestyle ever, best job. You know, people looked at it and all of my friends, I was supportive. They were like, well, why would you give up on all of this? And that was really hard. I think the one thing that kind of, um, helped me was when I was on my own in the evening in my flat the one thing I wanted the most was to get out you know what I mean like it was so obvious that I could continue this but it wasn't making me incrementally happy every day I just needed to get out so I followed that and it was the best decision I've made so I recommend however scary it feels like I think it's just about really doing the work and going straight down into your heart, your soul, or your stomach, wherever those emotions comes from for you or your head, right? And be like, okay, this is what I need to do for myself and do it. Exactly. And it comes back to your point earlier about what do you really want to achieve in life? Yeah. And you know what? I think I had achieved, that word is like achieved so much, right? My CV was like, I don't know if I could, I can't summarize it in a page, <laughs> but it was a moment where it's like, you know what? I'm going to stop trying to achieve. I'm just going to stop. You know, we, I, mean, this, I love this phrase in English. We are meant to be human being, but I was basically a human overdoing constantly, right? Mm. And I wasn't being. I was just achieving, overachieving on all fronts. And so I just wanted to be for a little bit, to breathe. And take a break, basically. I mean, it wasn't a relaxing break, Andres, so you know. Sailing, racing underworld, not sleeping. It was not restful. But my soul, my head, I just felt so much better. Just after like six months, six months well, three months, two months, I was like, yes, this is what I needed. Mm -hmm. So how did you plan the move financially? And what, what was the budget you needed? So the race itself, being part of a race, you have to have for a yearly cost, the base cost was 52,000 pounds, okay, to participate. On top of that, you need to add, I think it was about 6,000 pounds of training. And then on top of that, I did kind of do the budget um, and I do very conservative budgeting. I, like I budget more than what I'm ultimately going to spend, but I did budget between three and, and 4,000 pounds worth of kit, right? Because we're talking specific, so you need to have a full, there's like one type of sleeping bag and it costs two, 300 pounds. There's, you know, your dry suit costs 800 pounds. So these are not stuff that you can just find the cheap option because it's just one brand that does it in the world, right? So I had that budget in mind. And then at the stopovers, um, there's a few stopovers around the world. 
I kind of budgeted for a hotel or hostel kind of budget staying because you end up staying with other people to make it cheaper. So I also budgeted for that. All in all, this was costing me less than my year spent in rent in Singapore. Rent. But I was like, cool. And then all of my friends were saying, yeah, but you won't be paid. And this is where I was like, yes. And that's why I've been saving. It's exactly why you save. Sometimes you save, and this is what I like in these days with all this really cool financial app, you can have different pots to save for different things, which I love, by the way. But I always had, and I guess it goes back to my, you know, my parents, but like, have a pot of money. Either it's like, obviously not under your mattress, you want the money to work for you, but have a pot of money that you'll have in case tomorrow you find the house of your dream or you want to do this crazy travel that you've always wanted to. You want to go sail around the world and leave everything behind. You just want to have that at hand. And that money obviously will not be making a lot of money for you because you always want to have it liquid. Like you want to pull it out. You know, it's not like a 10 year. It was not in a life insurance plan, right? It was not in one of those investment funds where you can't take your money out. It was not making much, right? It was just saving on an account somewhere. But I was able to pull it out to use that. And I had it available on my account for the whole year. Should I need to pull out more money out of it? And then I guess the big question is, how do you train and prepare after, both physically, but as well mentally? (laughs) That is a big question. So I put a training plan together six months before I left, and physical and mental and emotional as well. So I physical is probably the easiest because it involves doing specific physical activities such as for, for, for yachting or for racing on the yacht. The great things to do are yoga to your balance, ability, and core. You'd be surprised at how difficult it is to go up and down from a boat or kind of going around on the deck. Rock climbing, and then a lot of cardio, so running, and I was doing a lot of rowing as well, so paddling on the sea. Okay. I was doing exercises between five and six days a week, and I had one race day. Then on top of that, I had also a special nutrition plan, so I was actually getting very lean and focusing on high protein to help me build my muscle mass. Just for, for reference, you know, a head cell, you know, the big cell that you put at the, at the front of the boat is between two, three, four hundred kilograms, depending on the size of the head cell that you're changing. So you do that with other people. You're not doing it on your own, but you have to be extremely strong on the boat. Mm. So there was all about strength and a bit of cardio because it's a lot of, you know, it was a lot of high, high pace. And then so the diet helped me with that. Then mentally, I went to actually see a coach, a high performance coach that helps athletes. And she's amazing. She's based in Singapore. And she helped me deal with the fight and flight reaction. Because oftentimes when you're in any expedition or in a race and you are under a very high stressful conditions or environment, your system, your body goes into a fight or flight mode, right? You However rational you try to be, you just get scared, you get hormone picking up, and then you're like, oh, fuck, 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 fuck. So you either freeze or you go into panic. And so you actually can train your body to not react, but to respond, right? Things like breathing methods, things like, you know, like looking out of the experience. So you're currently experiencing it and you take a long, deep breath, like, And it actually gives your brain some time to be like process the information and think, okay, I'm not in danger of death. What should I do? And then you actually take a lot more rational reaction or response to the situation. So I had that ready. 
And also because when you're racing on a boat with 20 other strangers on the same boat, you know those movies where they're like 20 strangers stuck on the boat in the middle of the ocean. <laughs> you know what happened at the end, right? Well, it's natural. Humans, you know, stuck together under high stress condition, not showered, no space for, you know, privacy and, you know, just to be yourself on your own and tired and sick and exhausted. What do you think happened? People get on each other's nerves, right? You lose it. So you have to learn the ability to frame the situation that you're in. And for me, it was the big word and the big learning was around kindness. So I try to adapt that a lot in my life when somebody goes at me and like starts yelling or snapping or poking. And I try to understand, but why are they reacting like that? What are they going through that makes them snap at me? And probably I'm not the problem. I know what I'm doing, right? I'm like, I'm just here, chill. But me telling them chill out is not going to help them. So I've learned that and it's been so helpful. And even now in my work environment, I'm a different person altogether. Much better manager too. So yeah, lots of preparation. Yeah, I can imagine. And how was the ad season? And what do you keep from it? Magical. You know, the thing is you can see as many movies and we can describe it with words, but oh my God, like you wake up and it's 6.30 in the morning and the sun rises and every day you see different shades of orange and blues and purples and or you're in the middle of the night, in the middle of the ocean and you cannot hear a noise. It's just you and the waves and the stars and you use the star you switch off the instrument and you helm you drive the boat just with the stars you look at the skies and you're like I'm part of something much bigger and yet and I'm all alone on this tiny piece of plastic or you know in the middle of the ocean I mean you know you see things that are incredible like a, a moon bow it's a moon rainbow you see dolphins so in the Southern Atlantic, we call them torpedo dolphins, but basically there's bioluminescence in the water thanks to some specific algae. And so if you move the water quickly, the bioluminescence get activated. You have dolphins everywhere in the Atlantic, right? In the Southern part, well, depending on the season. And then they would swim by the boat in the middle of the night and you see them light up in the water. Promise you, I was not on drug. I promise you, it was not in my imagination. I have 20 other people that can certify of that. It's really hard to take a picture of it. You see whales and the baby whales, orcas. You've got albatross following you all the way throughout the Southern Ocean. And then there are days where, well, days and weeks where, you know, you've got storm. We were chasing a hurricane on our way down to Uruguay. And you're thinking, I'm going to die here. This is it. And you don't. You just go through a really bad time. There were days where it was so cold that people had to go back down below every 15 minutes because you couldn't feel your hands, even though you had three layers of gloves. You were wet constantly in your sleeping bag or, you know, the waves were 12 meters high. So you look at your building next to you and it's the size of a wave and it's just right behind you. The boat breaches, it goes on its side. But that's what Adventures is all about. Like it builds your character. And so it's just beautiful, to be honest. It's just, it reminds you about us human. We are so small, we are nothing. And we should just enjoy and being, feeling happy to be able to enjoy good air, good water, you know, pure water, pure air, beautiful environment. Yeah, I mean, being at sea is just a privilege, really. If you can go out there, just do it. It feels really right. 
It seems incredible. And even the way you speak about it, you can really feel transported. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah. Cool. And so with your personality and the fact that you're always keeping busy, you've written a children's book out of it. So it's called The Wonder World Wanderers to encourage the spirit of adventures for kids. And I really love the idea, especially you being like the main character and being a woman. So again, how did that happen? <laughs> oh, yes, that was a funny one. So fast forward, we're in the Philippines, we're stuck. The pandemic is starting to be acknowledged as a thing in China. Um, they're closing the border. The Philippines is closing the border. We are repatriated to the UK. So I land in London with a bag of sailing clothes, a pair of Crocs, a pair of boots, and a pair of flip-flop in March 2020. So you can imagine it was not the best, but I have no place to stay. And, you know, kind of landing and getting friends to lend us their, their room in London and kind of figuring things out. I didn't have a job and I thought, wow, what can I do with my time, right? And I thought, why? You know, I've been writing the whole time while I was at sea, like a lot of notes because you have a lot of your brain has a lot of space. So you write, you write, you write. And I've got all these like, you know, got daughters and got sons and friends with children. And they loved following the race for all this time, right? They were always asking questions about the sea life. And so I really wanted to capture all of that and make it available to as many kids as possible. So I started writing it myself. I did a lot of research to do self-publication. It's really, it's a complicated process. It takes a lot of time, but if you've got time, why not? And then I found on Instagram, a great illustrator, actually a young woman based in Singapore who used to be a lawyer and decided just before the pandemic to quit her job and become an illustrator. So I was like, perfect, you're my match. And so we kind of created the book, self-published it. And what I did is then I used my network of people I knew from that keep a race around the world, friends, family. I created a shop on Shopify and I've been selling these books and I only print on demand. So, because uh, I'm very aware of the environmental impact and it's still paper, right? So I print when I get the order and then I give all of the benefits back to UNICEF, which was the boat that I was sailing on. And I was, I've been raising a lot of funds and money for UNICEF in the UK throughout the race around the world because I was kind of close of the UN woman family and I thought why not you know it makes complete sense and I don't know children at the end of the day if you're having a bit of a down time or down day I encourage you there's one way to get hope in about a second spend time with a child so yes I've been doing this and yes I sell I still sell the book the shop is available it's online it's the around the world wonder.com and you can order it and then I will ship it for you and I can even sign it for you as well, too. <laughs> oh, amazing. <laughs> Thanks. Also, the um, last few years, you've been featured into so many websites and articles. So you've been featured in the Financial Times, in Singapore-based newspapers. You've even been broadcasted on London Tube. I mean, how do you get all that press? It's just because you are there, you show you're motivated, you're loud in a way. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, the thing is like, I never sought, I never went after this, right? And this is the part that's a bit bizarre. And it's also why it's a bit random because you never see some sort of like, I don't have a brand. I don't have a brand manager. I don't manage any of that. I just do what I do. And as I connect with a lot of people, these people get inspired and then they want to talk about it. So yeah, there was just, there was just that. The Financial Times was, I think it was because they were doing an article around graduates from business school. 
it's a funny thing where now business schools are all about, oh, actually, we need to teach our students to not fit the financial and consulting mold and find their purpose and do something bigger. And I was like, guys, you're 10 years too late, but yes, good on you. And so now they call me, you know, 10 years ago, they would have not called me back because I wasn't, I wasn't at Goldman Sachs or McKinsey, right? So, but now they're saying, hold on a second, like, this is what success actually means these days. It's just finding your purpose and then fearlessly going after what you want to do and love. And I guess that's why I get featured. And oh, the London Tube was funny, I think, is because they, the Clipper race kind of took a lot of pictures of a lot of us for the profile to put on, on the ads. And they run focus groups and a lot of people, I guess because I'm a woman with with short hair and I don't have specific traits. They were like, they all could identify themselves with me. <laughs> and they were like, yeah, that's the one. And so that's how I ended up there all over the London. And I think it was Greater London. I don't know. I remember I saw you. I definitely saw you. Yeah. Yeah. It was everywhere. Right. I got tagged wow. on so many. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so anything's cooking now? Like, do, do you have anything in mind or something you we should be aware of? Uh, yes, there's a few things that are cooking. One is in three weeks' time. Three weeks' time, I'm going to do the, it's called the Caribbean 600 race. It's a Rourke race. So it's happening in from Antigua all around the Caribbean. And in the sailing world is one of the key big race. So I'm actually now getting into, it's not racing professionally, right? So I'm not a professional racer. I still have a, a day job, but um just because now I feel a lot more confident about my racing skills. I'm actually going on a Volvo Ocean Race, one of those big racing yachts, and going a week there to go race on Telefonica Black. So going back to a bit of sailing, and I am now part of, so it's a nonprofit based in the UK called Clean Sailors, and it was founded by a friend of mine called Holly Manuel. I encourage you to go and check it out on socials or on um, online, Clean Sailors. And one thing that kind of struck me in the sailing world, whether it's for leisure, pleasure or racing, is you've got all these people who are very self-aware when it comes to environmental practices at home. You know, they don't use plastic, they use reusable bottle, they, you know, they don't throw things away, they recycle, they reuse, all of that. And when they get on the boat, forget all of that. They buy all the shit from the local shop, full of plastic. They don't recycle. They use wipes. And it's like, guys, like what's going on, right? And so Holly kind of created that nonprofit with the aim to raise awareness and to bring all of the sailing community, the racing and the leisure and the marinas to adopt more well clean practices. And so we've launched, we've, we've launched a lot of initiative, but we've launched Clean Marina. We've just launched and we are sponsoring a racing youth team. And we're going to partner with some of those racing yachts in the big, large kind of sailing race. And we are also launching soon an online marketplace for old sails and lines, you know, the ropes on the boat, because these just, the way they get discarded is just throw them in the bin. It's mad. Whereas you could do a lot of it with all sales. You could do bean bags. You can do bags. There's a lot of ways to reuse your sales and your lines, like even dog leash. There's tons of reuse and recycling and upcycling opportunities, but it's not currently part of the infrastructure of the selling community. So we're creating a bit of a secondhand marketplace called Resale, R-E-S-A-I-L, a little pun. And um, yeah, we're going to be launching that in the coming month. Uh, to help the selling community kind of reuse all of this stuff as well. So that's one of my big projects. 
And then another one that is more longer term because it's going to be probably January next year. But I want to go back down to Antarctica with a bunch of badass ladies. And I want us to walk to the pole and I want us to document what it is to be a woman adventurer because I have a massive pet peeve and the brands are getting better of all, but oh my God, all the equipments for women in extreme weather or uh, what we call like high adventure, right? So all the kit that I mentioned earlier is basically either a, a small or extra small man size. So it's shrink it as opposed to find it, define it for the woman's body and woman's need. I'm really not surprised on that. Oh my God, that gets me really upset. Like I literally had, well, as women, we had to we had to put our life at risk in Antarctica as we were doing alpine climbing. You have a harness and when you pee, sorry, <laughs> details, but it's quite important details. When you pee, you pee in a bottle with a shiwi. Guess what? Men have a zip that allows them to take their thing out and easily pee in a bottle. For women, we don't have a zip that goes all the way down. It's a simple, super simple thing to do. Make a longer zip, right? And yet the brand's are only starting to look at it now and not all of them, not the actual big brands that have all the outdoor kit, right? And so as a result, we had to untie, talking with 1,200 meters high on the vertical facade full of ice and snow, locked into the wall with our ice spike. And I had to untie our harness in order to pull the three layers of our clothes, of our bottoms and underwear to insert the shiwi and pee. Why, as a woman, do I have to put my life at risk to do something that a man can do with three seconds because the kit is designed for him and not for me? Mm-mm-mm. So what I want to do is, I, you know, I've been talking to a lot of brands, obviously, but I also want to bring awareness to that in a bit of a more entertaining way. And hopefully it's in the beginning of it, but, you know, have a, a whole documentary done about what is it to be an adventurer, a woman adventurer? You know, what does it actually mean? So, yeah, that's two big projects. Mm. Yeah, you drones. Love it. And I always leave for the end questions a bit more broad so that we can just chat. So out of the many countries you visited, which are the really few ones that really left you with something special? Oh, wow. This is a good question. I love this question. I've been to, I don't count them anymore, but when I did count them before I did the Clipper Rest was 65 countries plus Antarctica. My favorites are Bhutan. Bhutan is exceptional. Bhutan, you need to have the financial abilities to get in there because they protect the tourism and they make you pay a a very hefty daily tourist tax. But Bhutan, what's fascinating, you would have heard about the happiness index that they have created. And they actually embody that throughout their practice, the way they make decisions with the government. They don't use pesticide. They protect the water. They are carbon. I think they are carbon negative country. I think it's one of the few. And they live by, mostly inspired by the Buddhist values, by values that are just so peaceful. And the country is just an amazing place to be. And you feel just like so connected to the rest of nature. So I highly encourage for, if you can afford it or safe to go there. Another place I loved was Patagonia. So when I went to Antarctica the first time, I flew into Buenos Aires, which is a great place too. And then I decided to go to El Chalten, which is a small kind of climber's town in the middle of Patagonia. And oh my God, you're in the middle of nowhere and it's beautiful, highly recommend too. And then there are Fiji, I thought was particularly beautiful. If you love the 
more of the islands. And Fiji um, has a beautiful protection program for all of their underwater forests, the corals. So it's very protected and that's good. It's very strict on any sorts of diving practices. And <laughs> so, sorry, I sound like I sound very privileged, but I did, that was the only thing I did, basically just travel to see all the world. And it makes me feel a lot more grateful to just, you know, be able to be in places that are just of beauty. I think we missed that. But sometime. what I love the way you say it is you really feel the passion. You really feel the interest. You really feel alive. So really really like it <laughs> and what are the few things really easy wins you would urge everyone to do for the environment oh i mean this is a no-brainer i think nobody needs a crash course on this right if you still are being lazy and buying plastic stop being lazy there's literally zero excuse for using plastic uh what i call them you know single-use plastic absolutely zero reason for this like give me a break the other thing is buy local right? There's, there's great apps all around. Um, I don't know if it exists everywhere, but uh, Too Good To Go. Yeah. Amazing app, right? So use that, find cheap local food, find a local market, go and meet your community, buy directly from them, buy things that grows around you. And then fashion. Oh my God, fashion. Uh, finally, we're starting to wake up. But at the same time, we have the rise of all this terrible brand that have not only a huge environmental impact, but also slavery behind it. Buy secondhand clothes, go thrive, you know, and just, just find some really cool place. Go online. There's tons of everywhere in the world. Like in Singapore, um, there's this place called the Fashion Pulpit. They have pieces that people have worn, bought and worn once, and yeah. then they're completely new and they're great. And this, I can find, I can go anywhere in the world and find the same. If you're in the UK, use Vinted, use Depop, use like, There's so many places just buy secondhand. It doesn't mean it's not as good. It just means somebody doesn't want it just now. That's all. And you will. So there's no need to create something new out of nothing. And last one, if someone was to ask herself, what would I do if I were not afraid? Which is a great question and which really makes you forget about the society and what you should be doing, but what you really want to do mm -hmm. for yourself. What's your advice that you would to make it happen? Mm. I would say is surround yourself with people who will support you with whatever ideas you have. Because oftentimes it's all the voices that we hear around us that makes us rethink what we already know inside, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes those voices are very close to you. They might be your partner, it might be your parents, your sister, your kids, whatever, right? And because these people are close to you, you'd think they want your best for you. But not always. These people also go through their insecurities and they will project those insecurities onto you. If they love you, they will support you. I promise you they'll be there. So it's almost like it, at some point when I did decide to go away sailing, I didn't tell my parents right away because I knew that even though they will support me and they did support me, they were the biggest, strongest, loudest supporters, right? But if I had told them before, I know that they would have projected all of their fear onto me because they were worried for my health and my life, right? So they would have convinced me not to do it because they love me, right? But I chose to not tell them or to kind of almost close my ears to some of the people around me. Not that I don't like them or I don't, they don't love me, but because I knew that they would be too afraid for me. Mm -hmm. But that was just a reflection of their own fear, not of mine. 
So that's what I do. When I have a big project, I'm like, I really look at this is what I want to do. Yes. Do I really want to do it? Yes. Cool. That, does it have any risk? Yes, it got this risk. How do I manage those risks? Fine. And financial risk is one of them, by the way. Yeah. So you look at that and you're like, cool, I have a plan for all my risks. And so then I go and communicate to these people and I tell them, I know you love me. I know you want the best for me. This is what I want from you. And this is how I need you to help me. And then suddenly you shift the conversation from, I'm doing that, you have no say in it, to, mom, I'm going to go sailing around the world. Would you like to help me pick the underwears because I need some merino underwears? So I give her a, a silly small mission. But then she felt part of the project and she was able to help. So she was actually, I was enabling her to almost manage her own fear by getting her involved in the project, if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. I like the mentality. It's surrounding yourself and bringing them into what you really want to do. Yeah, and I think, you know what, oftentimes when we want to do something and if people around us who love us say, no, you shouldn't, we almost take it personally and we forget that they have their own fear. So you have to have a lot of empathy and a lot of kindness. We go back to this, right? Yeah, be kind. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sandra, for this discussion. It's absolutely, I absolutely adore it. It's so inspiring to hear about you who really fight for what you care about, for to make the world a better place, who don't choose the easiest option, as you said it, and who really want to push you your dreams. Really well done. I'm really impressed and really impressed by your energy, by your motivation and your passion that you can feel through the the microphone so no thanks so much and uh, really keen to hear about your next projects <laughs> thank you appreciate it right now i have to go back to work but um i'm thank you again for your time <laughs> thanks to you keep thank the spirit you. bye <laughs> bye bye so at the end of this episode i hope you're as enthusiastic as i am You can find the notes and the key takeaways on my website at maricafino.com. And if you like this podcast, please subscribe and spread the word. Thank you.